All right, as I said, we uh, saw John turn around and he saw this very first vision that we have in the book of Revelation. And one of the things that we uh, talked about was that the very nature of this type of apocalyptic uh, language and vision was to allow us to form it in our mind and see what kind of picture we get and how the picture would bring us encouragement. And we talked about some things uh, pertaining to that. Some of you all had, had different things in mind when we described different things. And that's the very nature of this type of literature. Um, but speaking of that, I want us to look at the very end of verse 16 and then add to it verse 17 and see if we can learn something from that. You remember as we left verse 16, the last thing that it says is his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. And I think last week we talked a little bit about um, Mount Sinai and maybe how that when Moses came down off the mountain, he had been with God and just seeing just a glimpse of God caused his face to shine so brightly that they had to put a veil over it because people couldn't look at him. Okay, so we're kind of getting an image here of what is happening here. But why would this be any kind of encouragement? That last part of that where it says, and his countenance was, at, it was as the sun shining in his strength, and look what happens next. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. What was it? What, why did John fall at his feet dead when he finally gets to the end, like his being dead, when he finally gets to the end, and the King James Version says, and his countenance or his face was as the sun shining. And his strength. Yes, I saw Karen's hand first, I think. I don't know, Jeff might be. Is that, oh. Well, here's, here's a question I want us to, to think about. Why did he fall down like he was dead? Do you remember um, something that happened with Peter in Luke 5 when he saw Jesus perform a great miracle and he fell down at his feet because he realized whose presence he was finally in. But I think there's something even more going on here. and something that applies especially to John. In fact, let's open our Bibles. Hold your place here to Revelation. Let's open our Bibles over to Matthew chapter 17. And in chapter 17, of course, we've got the story when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. When he was transfigured into a glorious figure, and I want you to look with me at verses 5 through 7. And notice something that's very similar. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. Now, go back over to Revelation. Read what it says. And his countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me and saying unto me, Fear not. But what, does that sound similar though? I mean, that's almost word for word what happened on Mount, Trans, Mount of Transfiguration. And so in my mind, and I might be wrong about this, but in my mind, 
At the very end of this vision, John was seeing this Son of Man, even with all these different things going on, and obviously this is a vision, so different things are happening, and they don't make a lot of sense like we talked about last week. transfigured and transfigures allowing someone to see Jesus as he really was and that was as God and so what y'all were saying is true he's seeing God actually seeing Jesus manifested this way brought John I think back to that day on the, that mountain now how would that be now a, a source of strength of him to him alright there you go I like that um you know, I'm the same Jesus that was with me, with you on the mountain. This is me. I'm alive. I'm real. Side of Elijah, and who was on the other side of him? Moses. Elijah, the greatest lawgiver, as far as the Jews were concerned, that ever lived. He was, I mean, the greatest prophet of every, uh, that ever lived. Moses, of course, was the greatest lawgiver of anybody who ever lived. And of course, Peter, always trying to come up with some new plan, he says, "Well, let's." Build a, a, a temple for each one of them. Let's set up a special shrine for each one of them. And then we get to verse 5. It says, the, the voice comes from heaven and says, This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. He's the one that has the final authority. And so here in this picture, maybe John is seeing that picture again. And he gets this idea as he sees this son of man. And all these things are happening with his eyes on fire and his head being white and the sword coming out of his tongue and then his, his glory is exposed and we know that he is the final authority in all things. He is the one that's going to make everything right. And when John sees this once again, just like on the Mount of Transfiguration, he falls to his feet as a dead man. And then, this, and I don't think this is by coincidence, and then again the exact same thing happens. Jesus reaches out and touches him just like he did on the mountain and says, fear not. It's like it's come full circle. I was with you on earth, and I'm with you now. And um, I think it's interesting. It shows you how this is a vision and how we don't need to take everything we see in a vision as literal and know how things can shape. Well, the same thing happens. The thing you fear the most, John, the thing you fear the most, first century Christians, the thing you fear the most living right here on this particular day. Jesus says, it's going to be okay. You don't have to anything to worry about. Um, I know I probably shared this with you before too, but a year or so ago I was talking to somebody and it was during the time of all this terrorism and, and this person was extremely upset and they were upset. You know, what happens if this happened? What happens if this happened? What happens if... You know, and all this kind of thing. And I told this person, I said, are you a Christian? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, they can come in and kill me. And I said, and yeah. Then what happens? Well, I guess I'll spend eternity in heaven. Yeah. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. He's saying I, he, is, he has experienced every single thing that humans have experienced, including experienced death. And he's emphatic about it. He says, I was dead. It wasn't just me swooning on the cross and coming back alive when my body hit that cold stone in the tomb. It wasn't just something that my disciples faked. 
It wasn't just some kind of scam. I really was dead, dead, dead. But now I'm alive. And I'm going to live forevermore. And he emphasizes the amen on the end that this is true. You can take this to the bank. And therefore, we need to understand that death is all, that death is not the end. That Rome can do nothing more to you than kill you, but that's not the end of it. The worst fear you can possibly have to deal with living during this time period, or even us living in this time period, is death. And Jesus says, there's no need for you to continue to fear that. In fact, how did the psalmist put it? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. David could say that because he understood that death, remember how the psalmist says it, it's the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't say the valley of death. He says the valley of the shadow of death. A shadow can't hurt you. A shadow of a dog can't bite you. A shadow of a sword can't cut you. And death in its substance, because of what Jesus has done, is simply a shadow now, and it can't hurt you either. And he wants to make sure we understand that, and he wants to make sure John understands that. Any comments or anything else anybody like to add to that? Yes, Chris. Absolutely. We, we don't want to suffer, and certainly these people living in this day and age, some of the ways that they were put to death was a very suffering death. Um, but yet at the same time, Jesus says, you know, I suffered. Jesus says, you know, I did all everything I did for you so you could do this. And once again, it says he was tempted in all points like as we are. And I firmly believe that. Anything that we would experience in this life, he has experienced. And he says you can overcome. And of course, that's the whole point of this book. We're going to overcome. And of course, the Apostle Paul said, and I apologize, I can't give you the book, chapter, and verse right now. I'll pop my head. But he said the suffering of this present age is but a glimpse. It's only going to last just for a little while in comparison to eternity. So that's another thing that they would have to put in their hearts if they were dealing with some of the things that they were dealing with. But good, good point. Anything anybody else like to add? Yes, sir. Absolutely. In fact, every one of us, the Lord willing, will be able to say one day, I was dead, but I'm not anymore. Um, if the Lord doesn't come back, I hate to tell you all this, but each and every one of us are going to die. I mean, there's just no getting around that. We're going to die. We might not like to think about it. Uh, we set it in the back of our minds. But if we're really honest with ourselves, the day is coming when we're not going to be here anymore. Absolutely. And um, I, I mentioned this when Frankie was teaching uh, the class on Ecclesiastes, and we were talking about death in that class. Uh, many years ago, George Bernard Shaw said the universal statistic is the same. One out of one dies. I mean, that's just the way it is. But Jesus says, if we are his people, we don't have to fear death. There's no need to fear death. Um, a friend of, of Karen and, my, and I um, that passed away not too long ago, well, it's been a long time ago now that I think about it, but she had cancer, and she was a member of the church where my father was a preacher, and, and he went to go see her one time, and he shared this with us. He said that she asked him, she says, well, she, knows, she knew she was going to die. And she has asked him, she said, what is it like to die? 
And, of course, he couldn't answer that, and the only answer he could give her was, well, all I know is if you read the story of rich man and Lazarus, it says when Lazarus died, the angels carried him into, Abraham, carried him into Abraham's bosom. So I can tell you that when you die, angels come pick you up and take you to Abraham. And that's, that's all that could be said about that. Well, I'm not sure. It didn't say anything about how he got there, so it might have been one fiery slide or something. I don't know. But the passage wasn't supposed to give... Uh, the rich man, he hoped whatsoever. So I don't know how he got there. The Bible doesn't sell us. But the bottom line, Jesus is telling John and telling every one of us, don't fear death. Death. I was dead. I was dead. I'm not still dead. I'm alive. Yes, Jeff? Absolutely. Absolutely. But here Jesus goes on in the verse and doesn't just stop with the fact that he is dead and was now alive. Not just the fact that he has been resurrected uh, there have been people who are going to be resurrected, but there's something even more important about his resurrection because he goes on at the end of the chapter after saying that, Behold, I, al I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of Hades and of death. King James Version has hell there, but that's a mistranslation. It's the word for Hades, not hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked about the rich man and Lazarus. That's really the only section of Scripture we have that, that tells us that. But basically, Hades, if we understand it correctly, is a holding place for sales until the, the judgment day. And you already receive your reward. Sentence will be passed on the judgment day, but nothing's going to change. You know, you can be convicted, but the judge doesn't, doesn't pass sentence until, you know, he passes sentence. And that's the difference. That's why the rich man has already lost his soul, so he's in a place of torment, and why uh, Lazarus had already um, redeemed his soul, so he was in a place of comfort, and on the final judgment day, then that place will be dissolved, and people will spend eternity in hell, they spend eternity in heaven. Um, it's interesting, the idea of Hades and paradise, uh, or uh, Hades being divided up into torment and paradise when Jesus was on the cross and was about to die. Well, what did he tell the thief, where was he going to be with him at? Be in paradise. And so most people think there's the idea that Jesus died and went to the realm of Hades, and then he resurrected from the dead. And then he ascended to his father. So you have a clear distinction upon where Jesus was when he died and where Jesus was after he resurrected. He went to the holding place of souls when he died. But after he was resurrected, he went to where God is. Yeah, purgatory is a, is a place that's a little bit different from that. Purgatory is a place where you can go if you're not quite as bad. And you can get prayed out of purgatory. It's almost like a second chance. Yeah, you can die, and then you, well, you're dead, but you still get the opportunity because you weren't quite as bad as some people, so you get to go to purgatory, and there's a possibility you can be sprung out of it. In fact, one of the abuses of the Catholic Church that caused the Reformation was John Tetzel was selling what was known as indulgences that would not only allow people to sin while they were on earth, but it could pay to get people sprung out of pur purgatory. In fact, there was a, um, an old saying, whenever the coin the coffer hit, or how did it go, something, another soul from purgatory sprung. I can't remember how it went now. But anyway, that's what that particular idea is. Yeah. And, of course, the Mormons marry people out of that particular place. I don't, that's the reason why they have all the celestial marriages. Yes, Flo. Mm-hmm. That's what I believe. I might be wrong. There's some people smarter than me who believe once Jesus died on the cross, Hades was done away with. But, you know, people smart as Gus Nichols, but, you know, I don't know if I agree with that or not. Um, 
And all we only information we have on it is there in Luke chapter 16, so or 12, 16 or 12. I can't remember off the top of my head right now. But anyway, but that's all the information we have about it. The rich man and Lazarus. And the fact that Jesus said, This day you will be with me in paradise. And obviously, Jesus didn't go to heaven because he rose from the dead. Then he ascended to his father in heaven. Okay? But that's we could spend a whole week on that. Um, but get to, get to this. Have the keys of Hades and of death. What does it mean he has the keys of? Why is that an important figure? All right, I like that. When he gave Peter and the rest of the apostles the keys to the kingdom, what did that mean? They had authority, and we discovered, what are we going to say, Julie? All right, the opening to the kingdom. What were you going to say, Mike? All right. So he gave... So he gave, the, he gave them the keys of the kingdom. Basically, he gave them the gospel. Okay? And so and that was the way to get into the kingdom. Well, if Jesus Christ has the keys to Hades and death, that means he has control or authority on it, and he has the authority about who's in there and who's not in there. Not only when Jesus died did he get resurrected, but when he died, he conquered death. You know, the famous words there in... First um, Corinthians 15, around verse 53, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, is thy victory? Because Jesus Christ conquered death, um, we don't have to fear any death anymore because he's the one in charge of it. And so that's why he adds this on the end here. Now, after saying all that, I want you to think for a few moments and put yourself in, in John's shoes. Imagine John on this day. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He's been there for a while. Uh, we talked about earlier how that Patmos was not a resort vacation place. It was a horrible place to live, horrible place to live on that island. And the, this vision began, he was on the, it was on the Lord's Day. He says he was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. We're not sure exactly what that means, but some people think that he was in the process of worshiping God. He may have been worshiping all by himself, but he was thinking about the fact that there were other saints all around him, all around the world there, in that known world that we're also worshiping at the same time. And while he's worshiping, he has this vision. And basically, the conclusion of this vision, he, he tells John, he says, you don't have a need to fear ever again. The reason being, I am eternal. I'm the first and the last. I was dead, but now I'm alive and I live evermore. And I have the final authority on Hades and death. And when he says Hades and death, he's really talking about the same thing. So there's no need to fear anymore. Um, he, he just, Jesus just didn't survive it. He didn't just um, go through it. He conquered it. And he now has the final authority over it. And therefore, we don't need to fear it any longer. Anything anybody else like that? All right, go ahead, Jeremy. Absolutely. He was speaking from first-hand experience. And... Of course, this same Jesus is the one who says, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear those who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And um, that's the point he's making. If I'm in charge and you're one of mine, you don't have anything to fear. In fact, there's no need to fear any longer. A good point. But after establishing that, and that's really everything else that happens here in the rest of this book is based on this particular idea that he, 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 he's won, he is conquered, he's in charge. You don't need to fear anymore. He says, Now write the things which thou hast seen 
and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. There's going to be some things that John writes about that deals right at this particular moment. In fact, we're going to see that right now coming up with these churches. This is a here and now situation and how things are going to be in the future. So we're covering a large group of things here. But then he goes on in verse 20, and he says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden sticks, uh, the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now, first of all, right here at the beginning, Jesus is setting us up for the rest of the book. And that is, he's pointing out, when he mentions seven stars, he's not talking about seven literal stars. When he was here talking about seven um, lampstands, which is the correct translation, not candlesticks, seven lampstands, he is not talking about seven literal lampstands. In fact, he goes and tells us what they mean to let us know that when you see something in this book, it doesn't mean it's always going to be literal. It can mean something else. Now, it's interesting, not too many other times in this entire book will he tell us what something literally means. He leaves, us up, leaves it up for us to decide. But he does it here to set the stage for the rest of the book to help us understand that when John sees these visions, they're not intended to be literal, but they represent something else. And in fact, um, he uses the word here in the King James, the word mystery, and we hear that word um, mystery, and we think of something mysterious, or we think of something um, strange or what. But we need to understand that when they use this idea of mystery in this day and age, uh, it's talking about an explanation, an explaining. In fact, earlier we studied a book, and Paul talked about the mystery of the gospel. Well, the gospel's not mysterious. What made it a mystery is people before the gospel couldn't figure out how God was going to save the world. That was something the prophets wondered about. That's something the angels looked into. Well, John, John here, in his book, Jesus is telling John, I'm going to give you an explanation right now of what these, some of these symbols mean. The seven stars represent the seven angels of the churches. The seven lampstands represent the churches. That's all he's saying here. There's nothing do-do-do-do about it. He's just telling us that's what it means. But here's the thing, and we need, we'll, we discuss this, we'll run out of time. Uh, the seven churches is obvious, because we're going to be looking at the seven churches in the next two chapters, but here's the thing that people talk about all the time if you do any, any reading on this subject. Who in the world are these seven angels? Yeah. Who are, the, who are these seven angels, Michael? Okay. All right, let's explore that a little bit. It's interesting that in each of these churches, who does Jesus tell him, tell John to write to? When he's addressing these churches, who does he address? In every one of the churches, who does he tell them to address? The angel of that church. Okay? And so it may well be that what he's talking about, and there's a lot of people who agree with him, that this is talking, the angel here. The word for angel is angelos, which simply means messenger, and we've anglicized it and taken the word angelos and made it into a word angel. So this may just be simply talking about the preacher here. But some people say, well, that's an awful lot of responsibility for just the preacher because if you read through the, these two chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3, it makes it sound like the preacher is responsible 
for that church and for the actions of that church. May well be, but I'll be honest with you. I'll, I'll preach here, but I don't want to be responsible for each and every person and what you do. That'd drive me crazy. I wouldn't be able to sleep at all at night if I was worried about every single person. But it may be that's what's being talked about. There's other people. Who has another idea? I'm, we'll go through all of them, but what's some other ideas? There you go. Some people think that the angel here is a symbolic thing for the elders of a congregation. That when he says, write unto the angel of the church of Laodicea, he's saying, write unto the elders of the church of Laodicea. Now there you see some responsibility. Because the elders of the congregation are responsible for the flock, for feeding them. And sometimes they need to be sheared and all that kind of stuff. Um, But anyway, there is some responsibility there. So it may be talking about the preacher. It may be talking about uh, the elders. Um, What's some other ideas that somebody has? Okay, the idea of the old GA. The old GA, the old guardian angel. And... um, The whole idea of guardian angel comes back to a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples about, don't you know there's an angel watching over them? And that's where that idea comes from. And there are some people, and you can read in commentaries, that believe that what's being talked about here is how that each church had its own guardian angel that watched over it. And to me, that sounds like a very nice thing. I mean, I would like to believe that we have an angel watching over this church. I don't know if that's what that's talking about or not. There's no way we can tell that's what it's talking about or not. But that's what some people believe is happening here in this particular text. There's another possibility. What would another possibility be? How about it just be a regular old angel? And John's writing to this angel, and this angel's going to appear at that church and say, Listen, guys, you need to do this. But here's the problem. We don't know. And you can read and read and study and study, and everybody can give their ideas, but the Bible doesn't tell us clear enough to understand what's happening here. Yes, Flo? Well, the angels are God's messengers. They do God's will here on this earth. And I believe that we have angels around us today. I don't know if we necessarily have a guardian angel that's specific to me, but um, I think in a providential way, not in a supernatural way, like an angel doesn't... I'm fixing to walk across the street and a bus, a Greyhound bus is coming. He doesn't stop me suddenly and don't let me go because I have an angel in my pocket. Um, but I believe that providentially God uses his angels to do different things today. Working behind the scenes. I think that's how God's providence works. God working behind the scenes. I, don't, I can't explain it. And if you tried to push me on it and tell me how it worked, I couldn't tell you. But that's just the way that kind of thing works. Yes. Um, so it was something about you, and I didn't want to make it loud enough for him. No. <laughs> no, she called you. He's not an angel. Okay. No, she was asking about the, the songs. We, talk, we have songs that talk, talk about angels watching over us and that kind of thing, and she wanted some explanation on that. Uh, yes, Karen. <clears throat> and there's some there who, who play on that particular idea because the other symbol used for the church is the idea of the lampstand. And we talked about how that, the church is a lampstand for what? For the light of Christ. You know, the light that's shining on that lampstand is not us. The light, this little light of mine that I'm supposed to let shine is not my light. It's Christ's light. And so the idea, maybe it's a symbolic symbol for the idea of the message. You know, we're all supposed to be messengers. It might be. Um, the only thing that, that bothers people most about this particular passage is the fact that Churches is pretty cut and dry here. He says the seven 
lampstands are the seven churches. Boy, that just, that's there. You can just see that so easy. But how the angel figures in, it's just hard to figure that out. And we can just come up to our own conclusion. Um, all we know is the word angel means messenger. And so it might be he's just simply saying this is the message for the church at Laodicea, or this is the message of the church at Sardis, whatever. And like I said, I knew that would take up the rest of our time, and it did. And starting next week, the Lord willing, we'll start looking at these churches and what they were, John was supposed to write to their angels. But thank you so much for all your good comments and discussion.